We are grateful that you are joining us for another episode of the AgView Pitch as we know that your time is very valuable. Our team at AgView Solutions is always here for you for any questions or comments that you may have. Please feel free to reach out to us at cbaron at agviewsolutions.com. And now, here is your host, Chris Barron. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the AgView Pit. We are lucky enough today to have with us um, Bill Connerly, who is an economist um, from Oregon. And we had you uh, uh, two years ago in, in uh, Phoenix, Arizona, uh, talking the economy. And, and uh, we did an episode with you on 19 Minutes here a couple of weeks ago. So if you're not already subscribed to 19 Minutes, I suggest you get on there and and sign up. That's $30 a month. It goes out the 9th, the 19th, and the 29th of every month. And um, we had a great conversation with Bill there, but we are also going to have a great conversation today with Bill talking about the economy and a few other things. So how's it going, Bill? Uh, I'm doing great, and the economy looks pretty good too. Yeah, well, we're going to get to that in a minute, but the first, the, the, one of the things I want to say too is um, you're actually here at our farm today um, getting education on, on agriculture today, aren't you? That's right. I'm a city boy, but I, I saw the corn, I saw the beans, I saw the combine, I saw the planter, and I think maybe I understood a lot of your explanation, but I, I don't want to take a test on it. Yeah, well, well, we'll keep educating you. You know, you keep working with us on the economy and telling us what we need to watch from the farm gate, then uh, we'll keep educating you so you understand what's going on with us. So we'll get you in a tractor yeah. later today, too, and get you driving around. Great. I'll tell you, it's a lot more complicated than we consumers realize. Yeah, it is. And um, I think there's a lot more capital intensi- intensiveness of agriculture as a farm that you, I think you're really seeing. And not that you didn't think that before, but, you know, the the capital intensiveness and what it takes to make things be able to cash flow is really, really a key thing. Yeah, my grandfather uh, farmed a small plot of land in Alabama and uh he would not understand what's going on right mm-hmm. now. Oh, I bet he could be educated. It, well, he, so, he, he, if he was a farmer, he was pretty smart, probably, right? He was, but he wasn't, <laughs> a, wasn't a very successful farmer. Yeah, well, and, 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 and being successful in agriculture today, what we tell our clients always is mm-hmm. that we're a business and we just happen to farm. Um, those who are, con- who are still farming now really are truly, you know, probably some, in my opinion anyway, probably some of the best business people on the planet because of, of the risks and the responsibilities and all the things that are, that are really a challenge going on. So. Yeah, that's certainly true. And I talk to people from a wide variety of industries, manufacturing, you know, oil and gas, wood products, and it's all business. It's just the details that vary from one place to another. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. It's all about cash flow, right? Well, that's, that's pretty important. You you know, you, you need to be able to pay your bills and, you know, and, and that's the thing, too. Um, I want to start out with the conversation today on interest rates. Um, it wasn't too long ago, and all of us can remember just a couple of years ago, we were paying, you know, maybe three and a half, three and a quarter on a line of credit. Um, lines of credit now, um, eight and a half, nine, probably going to see some more interest rate hikes and, and maybe a longer duration of that. Talk a little bit about what got us to hear, you know, should we have been? Should there have been interest rate increases sooner that wouldn't have to go as deep? And you know, and, and what do we need to expect in the next couple of years? What, in your opinion, from a economic standpoint? 
Yeah, the big picture is you know, we had the pandemic, a huge amount of federal government spending, you know, stimulus checks, but there was a lot of other uh, money being pushed out by the federal government. And then the Federal Reserve System increased the money supply, brought interest rates down to approximately zero. And there was extra stimulus in the economy, but not extra productive capacity. Mm-hmm. And the classic definition of inflation is too many dollars chasing too few goods. And the Federal Reserve looked at the inflation, and at first they said, oh, this is temporary. This is transitory. Well, the transitory element, there was some truth to it, and that has come out. And now we're stuck with just the excess stimulus. So the Federal Reserve is trying to get the excess stimulus out of the system. It's going to take a while. My own forecast is they do another quarter point increase, but take that with a grain of salt. Maybe it's a half or maybe it's nothing. But then they have to just let time take its toll and keep interest rates where they are for maybe 12 months before they start cutting. Mm -hmm. And then they'd probably be slow at cutting too, you know, because they're going to want to see what the results of those changes are. So we could be, we could be, what I'm hearing you say then is we could have two years of interest rates significantly higher than what we had say two years ago, we could, this could continue. Yeah. And, um, I think the interest rates stay higher than they were. If you go back to where we were right after the pandemic, you know, in the say summer of 2020, uh, it's going to be tough to ever see those again. You know, if you're a young person and you're going to uh, watch your cholesterol get good exercise and live to be 90 years old, you may see those low interest <laughs> rates again. But, uh, Chris, you and I, I don't think we'll ever see interest rates as low as they were in 2020. Okay, so we need to recalibrate um, our borrowing. And the you know one of the things that we're looking at right now is uh, with a lot of operations is, is, you know, you look at carry in the market. In other words, with the corn market, you have the opportunity to, um, you know, take advantage of maybe the March or the May or the July markets, maybe 20 cents higher per bushel at that point. But the problem is, is, you know, it can be costing you five cents a month just to hold on to that inventory. So now all of a sudden we're calculating interest rates into the equation of when do we deliver and when do we you know, get the cash for that inventory. And, um, you know, a, a line of credit two years ago was pretty common to see an operation maybe with thirty or $40,000 of interest expense if they're looking at a million-dollar line of credit or a little more than that maybe. And now all of a sudden it's eighty or $90,000, um, you know. And so that's going to be something that on the bottom line, as businesses, we're going to have to really pay a lot of attention to, I think, moving forward. Yeah, and, and that raises an interesting challenge for anybody in business in any industry we tend to look at the recent past and form a sense of what's normal mm-hmm. and anybody who thinks that 2020s low interest rates were normal you know where they're in trouble yeah, yeah you're in, <laughs> you're in trouble the question is what should you take as normal Mm-hmm. And, you know, the old geezers are looking back at the 1970s, you know, mm-hmm. and 80s with, you know, double-digit uh, um, short-term interest rates and 20% mortgage rates. Uh, they've gotten over that. But every mm-hmm. generation sort of has a different sense of what's normal. And what I would recommend that people do is, is actually look at some historical data. 
and say, okay, we were at 5%. We went down to 0%. We're back at 5%. And try to rid your mind of a sense of what's normal and just mm-hmm. say, hey, what's going to happen next? That's the important concept. Yeah. I want to ask you a question that maybe you can answer, maybe you can't. But from a lending perspective, from the bank's perspectives, and maybe there'll be um, some lenders watching this that'll throw something at us. But um, I want to ask this question. So if if the line of credit now for a typical producer we're working with, let's say, is eight and three quarters. Is it easier for the bank or are there more margins in the bank's arsenal to, if you have a really good borrower that's really responsible and they've got really good data, good cash flow, good pl- business planning and all that stuff, is it easier for them to, to maybe say take a quarter or a half or even maybe up to three quarters of a percent off the rate when the rates are higher and take a lower margin for the lender, or is it still one to one the same difference? You know, to try to to try to get a little bit better uh, interest rate from the lender. It may be a little bit easier, but I don't think we're talking a whole quarter point. I think we're talking you know five or ten basis points. Banks mm-hmm. uh, are under a couple of challenges. One is because there have been so many forecasts of a recession, they're being cautious, they're tightening their credit standards. And one of the things that many bankers learned a while back was it's better to cut price than to cut credit quality standards. And uh, that's kind of a relic of the 2008-2009 recession where so many companies were Mm -hmm. hurt. So I think that uh, if you're really good credit quality, you you, you should try to negotiate. And I think there's room for that. But banks also have another problem, which is uh, coming up with the money to lend. Deposits used to be flowing into the banks when there was no alternative. People got stimulus checks. They put the money in the bank. They did not spend it right away. But recently, deposits have been leaving the banking system. People are saying, hey, the banks are still paying low interest rates, even though I can go to a money market mutual fund and get a better return. Hmm. So banks have higher costs and they perceive higher risk. So it's a tougher time to be a borrower. Hmm. Interesting. So the, the, the banks are not having much fun either right now then either. Right? Well, you know, <laughs> bankers are sometimes like farmers in which they will tell you it's always a tough time. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and I had an interesting um, situation. We had a um, peer group meeting, and in that peer group meeting, we had a couple of our clients that brought their lenders to the meeting. And and um, the in that situation, what we did is each farm operation had an hour to work through some of the challenges and opportunities that they had specific to one or two topics. And the interesting thing is when we were doing takeaways at the end of the meeting, the both of the lenders had a common theme that, you know, we spend all of our time being risk averse, trying to eliminate risk and get rid of the risk. And, you know, both of them said, and we just sat here with eight different farm operations and all you guys talked about was taking on risk, you know. <laughs> and so I think the there's always a bit of that um, give and take between the consumer or the business person and the lender to navigate a an appropriate balance for risk versus reward and make sure that you do take calculated risk because that's the only way you're ever going to grow. Right. I mean, if you don't take risk, you're going to go nowhere really quick. Right. 
And so I think there is a balance there, though. Any comments on that philosophy or? Well, well you know, I think you have uh, described bankers pretty well, mm-hmm. because when a banker makes a loan and thinks, hey, what could go differently than I'm expecting? Mm-hmm. There's no upside. You know, mm-hmm. it, we get paid back. That's, yeah, I that's want my what, money back. <laughs> that's what we're expecting to get yeah. paid back. And if the guy does really well, we get paid back, but we don't get a bonus. If you were talking to a venture capital investor, they they want to see companies taking risks mm-hmm. because they know that there's not going to be a high reward unless there's high risk mm-hmm. taken. They don't want people who are cautious mm-hmm. if you're doing venture capital. So the... Uh, farmer or small business person in any area has to kind of balance the investor side, which is you have to take risk to get good reward versus uh, placate your banker, your lender who just wants to get paid back. Right. Um, That brings up another point. You know, you had mentioned access to capital and then you brought up, you know, venture capital and all these things. And you look at the Bill Gates's of the world and some of those people that are buying farmland. Obviously, farmland apparently is a good investment, which farmers have known for a long time. Um, You know, the old adage, they're not making more of it. But on the same token, um, I think what a lot of the the big money people that are that are buying farmland, it's just part of their portfolio, right? You know, they're, they're diversifying their portfolio. Um, Any thoughts on land as an investment, looking at it from an from an economist perspective versus the stock market versus, you know, I mean, most farmers really don't want to put money any place other than in, than in land or in their business to continue to grow it. Any comments on, on any of those philosophies or anything there from your perspective? Yes. I encourage every investor to diversify. Mm-hmm. So if you are, say, somebody who's into stocks, Uh, I recommend that they get some real estate and you can do it in a stock market like way through Mm -hmm. a real estate investment Mm -hmm. trust. And there are farmland REITs. So an everyday um, person who just collects a paycheck, invests in stocks, can buy a little bit of farmland through a REIT. And that diversification reduces risk. Mm -hmm. And it also uh, has some protection from inflation. Farmland ends up being uh, a relatively good um, inflation hedge. And farmland did better in the recent run-up of inflation than gold did, which Mm -hmm. didn't do much at all. So, uh, you know, but if somebody's already heavy into farmland, I'd say, oh, start looking at the stock market. Start looking Mm -hmm. at maybe some commercial real estate, get some other uh, assets in the portfolio Mm -hmm. if you're thinking of it as an investor. But I can understand uh, a farmer who says, hey, I've got, you know, this many acres and I'd be even more efficient if I had a larger operation. Yeah, okay, Mm -hmm. you want to take some risk, but you have to understand you're you're becoming less diversified and the return may be uh, good for that, but, you know, you have to balance Mm -hmm. those. Yeah, to kind of watch that thing. So you talked about um, inflation, and we've had a, a pretty steep inflationary cycle here. Um, my numbers, and I think I've told you this before, you know, are significantly higher inflationary numbers than what the the government measures. You know, I'm looking at what we call return to management, which is all of the overhead expenses for the farm. So it's it's fuel, it's kids in college, it's 
it's food, it's draws, it's payroll, it's all those things that we, we couple together and we put in that one bucket. And we've seen literally, you know, in the high 30% in the last couple of years increase in that line item category. Um, inflation has created that. What will deflation or recession or whatever, are any of those things going to come back? Because what we see is there's the sticky things such as if you pay an employee, um, you know, you give them an extra $10,000 a year, you can't go back to them the next year and say, you're going to get 10000 less very easily, or you're probably not going to have very good employment retention. Um, you have those kind of things, those sticky numbers versus the, the ones that aren't as sticky. Any comments on, you know, as inflation slows down, that doesn't mean that the stuff's going to necessarily get any cheaper. It's just not going up as fast, right? Well, it varies from, from product to product. Mm -hmm. So you take uh, crude oil on the world market, you know, the price has come down from it, its peak. And in the past, it has gone up, it has gone down. And then crude oil affects, um, you know, the diesel fuel cost, and it connects to fertilizer costs. So transportation, all your overhead stuff. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So that's something that comes down. Um, the uh, commodities that a person might buy, and I mentioned fertilizer, but maybe some of the feeds could come down in price. Services like labor, they typically don't. But what the sharp people are doing when they have to pay more for their labor is they're saying, um, is this going to be permanent? And if it's a permanent situation, you give somebody a pay raise. But if you think, hey, it's a really hot market for the kind of people I have, but it may not last, uh, give them a bonus. Mm -hmm. And the bonus may keep them on board for a year, and then you have not built in that bonus mm -hmm. into your pay structure. Sometimes the bonus is dangerous too, though, because... You, you know, I've seen people do that and you, you right, you, you give a, you give an employee a bonus and then the next year it's like, where's my bonus? I don't, I'm not, I got a bonus last year. Why am I not getting one this year? You, know? you have to, you have to sort of couch it in the right thing and say, Hey, this is a bonus because we've had a great year and you've done yeah. unusually good work. Yeah. Don't count on it next year. Yeah. Don't budget for it. You know, use it to pay down debt. Don't use it as a justification for buying a new truck right. and, and going mm -hmm. into debt. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think you hit the nail on the head. A lot of that has to do with just really solid communication too, right? It's, making sure that you explain if if there is a bonus showing the calculation showing where it's coming from why it's there and why it couldn't why it may not be there next year don't expect this and make that a real clear expectation that this is potentially a one-time thing and i think that if you, if you can get the expectations clearly defined i think that a lot of times is what causes issues with bonuses is just the lack of the explanation like you said there so and, and i will add <clears throat> that a lot of the uh, labor issues that owners and managers have uh, derive from poor communication. Mm -hmm. uh, very few mm -hmm. managers spend enough time talking one-on-one -on -one with employees, uh, not only about how the operation is going, but how the employee is doing. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, if there's bad news, better to give it sooner than later. Mm -hmm. That's a good point. I mean, we, we work a lot with operations on um, employee retention as well as employee access and that's something I want to ask you about as well then is on the, the the labor access side of the equation you said you know you were traveling here today and 
saw, you know, uh, a thing for $13 an hour. And then we were talking about, you know, you can, there's places in McDonald's and, you know, populated areas where they're offering 20 bucks an hour to flip burgers or run the cash register or whatever. Do you think the the labor, the access to labor is going to continue to be a, a really difficult thing? Because what we see is it's kind of regional too. You know, you go up to North Dakota, South Dakota, um, some pockets of Southern Missouri and, and down in the South and the Delta, and there's pockets where labor is difficult. And so they've had to go to H2A, you know, South African employment or, or something along those lines to get qualified people that are, you know, you can't just hire anybody to run a combine or hire just anybody to, to run a, any piece of equipment anymore. Everything's so sophisticated. What's your take in the next couple of years? What do farmers need to be thinking about in terms of access to good quality labor that, that has the capacity to do some of the things we need? Well, there is substantial variation from one region to another. So everybody should understand what's going on in his or her state or part mm-hmm. of the country. But in general, it's a tight labor market right now. You know, unemployment under 4% nationally and in most uh, parts of the country. Uh, A recession will ease that just a little bit, just temporarily. But we are in a tough situation in the United States where our working age population is hardly growing at all. In fact, the growth of the working age population, you know, people who are you know, from mid-20s on to, say, mid-60s. Uh, we're seeing the slowest growth of the working-age population since the Civil War. Hmm. Baby boomers are aging out, and that's a huge portion of the baby boom. Uh, the young people entering, you know, leaving school and entering their working-age years, it's a relatively small number. So it's going to be a very tight labor hmm. market through 2030, and even then it's only going to get a little bit better. So... I think every business owner, farmer, rancher, whatever, needs to be thinking about three things. One is labor productivity, uh, how much output. And I'm not talking about, you know, uh, arguing with them to work harder. I'm talking about better tools, better training, um, better management. Labor productivity should be top priority. Labor retention, helping people want to stay is second. And then recruitment. Uh, And if you do retention well, uh, then the recruitment is easier. You get word of mouth and a reputation. Mm -hmm. Interesting. I want to continue on this topic a little bit, but I want to bring it around half circle to AI, to technology and the changes that are occurring. I just listened to a podcast with Ed Milet the other day at a uh, doctor of something or other on there talking about AI and the issues of what that's going to do there's going to be a disruption you know you look at semi-drivers it's you know and you look at all a lot of the different employment opportunities that people have and then you listen to that side of the argument and it's like well within two or three years AI is going to take over and you're going to have all of these job displacements because you know we're going to have the technology to to not need the people do you see a shift coming from that disruption or do you see that as just flowing into the system and and being part of what we do and it it blends in ai will be a big change 
and I've written a series of articles on uh, Forbes.com. If you just Google my name, Connerly, and Google's so Google is so good at using AI, it can figure out that you've misspelled my name. So don't worry about <laughs> yeah. the spelling. Google Connerly AI Forbes, and you'll see a list of four or five articles. And the the key thing is that different industries have different mixes of of kind of work people do. And farming is one of the areas where we will see less, relatively less benefit from AI. The people who spend their day in an office manipulating words and numbers, that will have the biggest impact. So financial services and sales and marketing, big impact in, from AI. But the, um, the farming, manufacturing, construction, uh, will have very little. And the, the shift towards more artificial intelligence is slowing down the change in robotics. Everybody who's really good at the machine learning and the programming, they're now working in AI. And I think we're in a little bit of a plateau on the robotics side, which is good news for people doing manufacturing work, construction work. The robots aren't going to take away that kind of activity. So what I expect is that um, there will be more demand for consumer goods, and that will benefit um, manufacturers, farmers, um, uh, and um, uh, contractors. And without the AI productivity gains in those sectors, those will be strong industries. But when you talk about financial services, sales and marketing, we'll definitely see fewer jobs in those areas. So a lot of the listeners that we have have kids. Um, a lot of um, the listeners are younger and have younger kids, but um, we have quite a few that have kids graduating this year, next year, last year, or going to college. Um, we have one sitting here right now that's a, our a technical engineer that's hiding in the background recording this. Um, what What things do they need to be doing in college? What things do they need to be thinking about? Um, because all of this stuff changes really fast. I mean, think of how things changed five years ago to now. What do these parents and these um, farmers listening, where do they, what do they send their kids to college for? Yeah, good question. And part of the reason so many kids go to college is their uh, schools tell them that you're nobody unless you go to college. Mm-hmm. And, and that's a lot of BS. It is. You know, there are plenty of people doing well, living satisfying lives, enjoyable lives. And that's the most important thing mm-hmm. rather Be happy, than before, yeah. before money, yeah, being happy. Uh, but even on money, there are a lot of people who end up with low-wage job, college graduates, low-wage jobs and college debt. And then the, the person who decided college wasn't for, for him or her is um, an electrician making 100000 a year and good benefits and no um, college debt. And no college debt. debt right? Yeah, it's like, well, why, why did we tell people not to go into the trades? Why did mm-hmm. we tell people not to go into uh, farming and um, manufacturing? Uh, it, it, it's silly. Mm-hmm. So I think there are a lot of good options. Um, if you want to catch the AI wave, uh, that makes sense if you're really in, say, the top 5% in math ability. Mm-hmm. But if you're a little bit lower down, you could have, 
you could have been just average or slightly above average intelligence and make a good living as a programmer, but that's going to be harder and harder as AI takes over writing the programs itself. Because yeah, AI is writing a lot of the programs and stuff now, right? Yeah, I mean, it is. And um, so the low-level programmers are going to have a challenging time. Right mm-hmm. now, they're, they're spending their time harnessing the AI for specific applications. But I think that... Uh, you know, I think carpenters over computer programmers for the next 10 or 20 years. Mm-hmm. What what about, though, with the with that role, let's say, you know, um, on the computer side of things, where does the human, you know, versus the, the system come into play? Uh, the, the, tell me a little bit more. What well, wh- wh- where do you where do you draw the line? I mean, where will companies say, OK, we need human intervention in this portion of the business and the computer can run this side of the business, but we need humanology in this portion of the business. Yeah. That, you know, that's a great question. Back in the old, old days of people went to a general store and the store owner knew the customer. uh, And that was a relationship and the store owner could dial in the inventory. And then we became, you know, A&P became supermarkets and then Walmart and they did the data stuff and the store manager doesn't really know the customer. Uh, I think we may go back and say, okay, the AI is pretty good at knowing customers in mass, but doesn't really know what Chris wants. And there will be room for the face-to-face. There's also an important need. AI has this hallucination problem where it just makes up stuff and um, uh, there, there needs to be a human looking at the AI results to double check that it's mm-hmm. there. Kind of fact check it right. or whatever. Right. And, and that there's a whole range of things that AI is not particularly good at. And, you know, to go back to farming, um, a couple hundred years ago, 80% of uh, Americans who were working were working on farms. Mm-hmm. And we've gone from 80% to 2%. Mm-hmm. So that's a difference of 78%. And I would argue it's closer to 1% now, but... <laughs> Could be. Right. And But we do not have 80, uh, 78% unemployment because right. all those people left the farm. And There'll be other things that people want. Right. But a lot of them will be more service-oriented, more hands-on activity. And, you know, I mentioned things like construction, but... Uh, it couldn't. It will include bars and restaurants, massage mm-hmm. uh, activities, river guides, mm-hmm. fishing guides, people management. Yeah, I yeah. mean that that's one of the areas that we see is probably in agriculture anyway, in the farm businesses is is one of the areas where we probably don't do the best job. Yeah, you know when we start looking at, you know, most businesses are pretty good with PR with the public relations but they tend to not be very good with the HR. You know, the like you said, the employee retention. And you can look at your business and say, okay, what's our employee turnover look like? If it's, if it's high, you know, one of the things Shay always says is, you know, there are, there are no bad teams, there are only bad leaders. Yes. And, you know, so we have to sometimes probably reflect and look at ourselves and say, okay, if we're having turnover, why is that? You know, and I think that's just one of those areas that I would point out anyway from my perspective that I think, you're going to have that human need indefinitely, I think, you know, where you need humans working. Yes, right? and um, many of the leaders in business, government, nonprofits 
learned how to be leaders in that era when first the baby boomers were entering the job market and the children of the baby boomers were entering the job market and women were going from a third of them working to two-thirds of them working. We had a huge uh, increase in the labor supply and you could be rude to an employee and the employee knows that there's 10 people waiting to apply for your job if you quit. Um, so management could be kind of slack. But mm -hmm. today in the tight labor market, management cannot be slack. Mm -hmm. Management needs to focus on productivity and retention mm -hmm. of their employees. And I think for a high level of people or a lot of people anyway, they don't necessarily like having to manage people. <laughs> it's not, you know, I was talking to Alyssa about my wife yesterday. She said, you know, a lot of us as business people didn't sign up to be people managers. We signed up for the business. We're, you know, like in agriculture, we signed up to be producers, not employee managers. And, and as we grow, we have to either get good at that or we need to hire somebody to do the HR in-house then. Either we do it or we better get somebody in there to do it if, if we want to have good quality people and retain them. Yeah, and I think that that is something that cannot be offloaded to the HR manager. H, you know, the true the uh, direct supervisor has to be good. Yeah, people don't quit mm -hmm. jobs; they quit bosses. Right. You need to de-jerkify the bosses. <laughs> yeah. It's a uh -huh. word you can look it up in your phone. De de-jerkify. I'm gonna yeah. have to write that one down. <laughs> and the you need to de-jerkify yourself when I'm <laughs> working with people. I'll tell them that exactly. And the eighty twenty rule applies to managing people. 80% of a manager's time is spent with 20% of the employees. And which 20% of the employees do you figure it is? The ones that are being a pain in the ass most Ex of the time. Exactly. And who do you most want to retain? You want to retain the opposite 20%. Right. You want to retain the people you're not talking to because they're not problems. Right. So a manager needs to say, okay, um, if this employee is, is, is a problem better off getting rid of the employee and spend time talking with the top performers or the middle performers who <clears throat> could be top performers with a little bit more encouragement, maybe a little bit more, more training, uh, better tools, but let's spend some, let's find out what tools the employee needs and managers need to reallocate their time from from the problem employees to the the middle and high quality mm -hmm. employees. Yeah, which is hard to do, but it, that's really good advice. Well, the best advice is usually hard to do. Yeah, it? right. Yeah, it, true. That's yeah, that's very true. The always the the hardest thing to do is usually the most important thing you need to do. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. Um, as we get closer to wrapping up the conversation here, so we've talked about interest rates, we've talked about recession, we've talked about inflation, we've talked about labor access retention. Um, what have we, what have I not asked you? What, what, you know, it, it, you know, you've been looking around our farm today, you've seen the capital intensiveness of what we have to figure out how to be able to pay for, how to manage, how to cash flow, how to be productive, how to be efficient. What do you, what would you tell the listeners in the next three or four years to pay really close attention to, um, specific to, to agriculture business management? What, what are kind of the two, three key takeaways that, you know, they go back, what can they apply to their business? Well, I'm going to, to go back to the employee productivity side and yeah, interest rates are higher than they had been higher than a lot of people are used to, but um, for, for in many areas, it's still a good investment 
to buy better equipment, better tools. Let's just say tools in general, and that may be a, a big a, a big machine, mm-hmm. uh, or it could be a computer. It could be better communications equipment, software, whatever. But um, the investment in productivity uh, equipment is, I think, hugely valuable. And uh, given the tight labor market, uh, sometimes you just have to say, yeah, interest rates are high, but I'm going to hold my nose and uh, go ahead anyway because uh, I'm not going to be able to find a lot of cheap workers. Mm -hmm. So basically the takeaway is put the money in the technology that's going to improve efficiency and hang on to those good people and stop worrying about the ones that are a pain in the ass. Maybe they need to go anyway, right? Uh, they'd probably be happier somewhere else. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, and I see that sometimes, too. You know, when somebody leaves uh, an operation, you're only as good as the weakest uh, link in the chain sometimes, too. So Right. And, so. you know, and, and um, an unhappy employee makes other employees unhappy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you don't want unhappy employees. Yeah, yeah. It's the ether in the air, so... All right. Hey, um, Bill, this has been a great conversation. Um, if people want to look you up or would want to reach out to you and say, have a specific question about the economy, about their business, about kind of what you do, you do speaking events and you do consulting on the economy and economics and stuff. What's the best way for um, people to look you up and to, to kind of check out what you're up to and what you do? Yeah. Uh, my business is Connerly Consulting, connerlyconsulting.com. And again, uh, just take your best guess, Bill Connerly, C-O-N-E-R-L-Y, but uh, Google figures it out, and um, I'm happy to talk to people and uh, reach out. I write uh, five articles a month for Forbes.com and uh, do some YouTube videos myself as well, mm-hmm. so uh, just go Googling, and there I am, and feel free to reach out to me. Yeah, and I've checked out your your uh, what you're doing with AI, the, the series you did yeah. on that. That's really good, so I would highly recommend people, if they haven't um, looked at some of the stuff you've done, they need to check it out. It's really good quality content, and really appreciate you being here today and excited to get you in a tractor and see how good you are at running the tractor. <laughs> Great chatting with you, and thanks for the tour of the facility. Yeah, you bet. Thanks again, Bill, and And hopefully this was a a good educational opportunity for you to kind of hear what Bill had to say about the economy. And again, uh, Bill and I did do an even more in-depth conversation on 19 Minutes. If you want to check that out, um, we'll put that in the the show notes here too. So if you want to click on that and check, check out 19 Minutes. And with that said, again, Bill, thank you very much. And thanks everybody for listening. And we'll catch you again next time on the Ag View Pitch.